welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for another show. And here we are live once again in an actual pub-like environment. This is actually Artisanal Burger in West... Uh, West... Uh, where are we anyway? Manchester. Well, we're in, Ma- right where we're in Manchester. We're actually in Windsor, South Windsor. This is this, Windsor, okay. Yeah, okay. we've actually crossed over the, the line into South Windsor. Okay. Anyway, if you're in Connecticut and you care about these things, you would know what we're talking about. But probably you don't because you're not. So, <laughs> it's great to have you with us uh, on the show today. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I've done other things, including uh, teach philosophy, and I've written books. Uh, uh, I've got a book that's hopefully going to be out in the spring on Tom Bombadil. Don't know what it's going to be called yet, but that's in the works and it's nearly completion. And I am joined by my uh, fellows in crime, my uh, compadres. And Today, uh, we'll start with you, Glenn. I usually turn to... To Tom, but Tom's day is this day, so why don't we have you introduce yourself and then we'll have Tom do his thing. <laughs> I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I also have a book that was just recently published. It's called Slaying Leviathan. Uh, it makes a great stocking stuffer, so. Yeah. If you have a big stocking. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great book. It's a great book, and it's selling well. And uh, did I hear you correctly that you got another, uh, you got another sort of uh, inquiry about writing another book? Well, yeah, actually, I've got another book that is virtually written, Ooh. and Canon is interested in it. So I will, that will probably be coming up pretty soon. I will let you know once things are actually signed. Okay, so we're in that stage. Okay, so you're not free to divulge that information, but we will get back to that someday. But anyway, thanks, Glenn. Tom, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, Tom Price, systematic theologian. Get a little closer to the mic there, Christian Tom. ethicist, okay. And I teach both, various places, one of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Um, I also teach philosophy, too, and uh, other kinds of things, actually. Right. <laughs> I don't often mention that, but uh, they're, they're all part of the, the same package of teaching. Um, and yeah, I got, uh, well, two book ideas that are really coming to solidity, but I'm still going to keep it a mystery until uh, yeah, I've right. uh, finalized a few things. That's right. You dangled the mystery in front of people. Yes, and they, just, they, they start to salivate intellectually. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today is your day, Tom, and you've talked to us a little bit about what you're going to share and, uh, okay. and introduce, uh, but it's a mystery to everybody else, so, so repeat yourself. Okay. Well, to... To, uh, to, to lessen the mystery but not eliminate it, um, we're going to be talking about something pretty much uh, related to this kind of part of the season we're about to enter into. Um, we have Thanksgiving coming up in a few days. Um, I think when you hear this, it'll be a little bit after that. But yeah, and some of you will be in prison because you'll be arrested for having too many people in your homes. Which, so. which is kind of <laughs> indirectly one of the things I, I noticed that didn't get hitting. a big laugh. I think everybody's really afraid that's going to happen to them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Christmas to follow if you're not imprisoned by that point. That's right. The Grinch. The Grinch is saying no Christmas this year. Coronavirus canceled Christmas. And and I'm going to make a a bit of a spiritual analysis or or I'm going to make a bit of a spiritual analysis uh, of what may be driving some of this um, based on what we talk about today. So hopefully someone can remind me of that if I forget to do it. But especially this move to... um, to you know, bring Scrooge out right around the time uh, in the Meisterburger Burgermeister, right that's around right. the time that's, of that's right. of Advent. And plus, what I want to hit into as well is a little bit about uh, the significance of these. But 
narrow the topic. It's, we're dealing with, I'm going to be talking a bit about uh, festivity, feasts, and uh, celebration. And of course, we are welcome to bring in carnival and some of the other things related to that. And I'm going to be taking uh, uh, my lead from a great work by Joseph Pieper called In Tune with the World, A Theory of Festivity. Um, if you haven't read it, read it. It's, uh, it's a profound book. It's some, there's something in there we can all learn something from. Now, the great thing about Pieper is, too, he, is he writes thin books that are really rich. Yeah. Usually you get thick books that are really sparse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but with Pieper you get thin books that are rich. Very rich. I, I think one of the, uh, you know, from, from the books I've read of Pieper, everything I've ever read has been um, a lot of, of substance in, in a very clear style. Um, and one that uh, after you read it, you're thinking... I've always wanted to say that, but I never quite could say it the way he just pulled well, it well, off. You know, I actually think that's a measure of greatness when it comes yeah. to theology, when it comes to any kind of literary art, is the ability to say something clearly with great uh, sort of richness. Uh, there's lots of stuff going on, but at the same time, it strikes the reader as just sort of uh, intuitive and obvious almost. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think, um, you know, they often say, um, you know, subject matter and, and style, when, when they can fit in that right kind of connection, um, really give a huge testament to the kind of profundity of the material you're actually talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think Peeper is one of those people that pulls that off. Well, I th and sometimes I think a reason why people fail to appreciate the, the depth of, of some writers it's just simply because they don't have much depth themselves. So, and I don't mean that in the sense of being a sort of a profound person, but more in the sense of having read enough to know what's being alluded to very subtly and very uh, economically. Yeah. So, like, when you read, you know, everybody reads C.S. Lewis, but how many people are able to appreciate just how much mm -hmm. in a, just any given sentence yeah. that C.S. Lewis wrote that he's on. referring to stuff that's just sweeping. In, yeah. in, you know, I think that most people, just, uh, that just because they just have never been introduced to the ideas that he's alluding to, they just miss them. Yeah. They miss these things. And I think we find that with great writing. And I know there's a lot of uh, people out there who, who want us to cover more and more um, issues of, of literature and, and engagement with it not just people like Lewis um, and, and theologians, and so I'm sure we'll be getting to things like that. But that's something that I think you see with great writers overall. And the thing about uh, Peeper is he kind of touches on... Okay, excuse me, let me, let me jump in here for yeah. a moment. That Something you just said triggered a thought. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that we talked about recently is the idea that literature, scripture, among other things, can be multivalent. In other words, that it can have multiple layers of meaning. Yeah. And the, you know, there are some people who don't really like that idea. You know, they, they think that, that somehow that is uh, distorting scripture or something. The, the thing is, if you read great literature, there are multiple layers of meaning. Oh, yeah. So are you saying then you know, that, you know, is Moby Dick a story about a whale? <laughs> Is that all Moby Dick is? For some people, yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but, but it really isn't. No, it's and, not. Everything about it tells you right from the opening lines. Right. So, so the question is, is the Bible inferior literature to Moby Dick? 
Yeah, and I would go even further in that direction and to say that reality itself is multivalent. In other I would, words, I, I would definitely agree with that. So, yeah. so if, if literature reflects reality, then we ought to expect multivalence in good writing. And obviously, mm -hmm. Scripture is the supreme mm -hmm. you know, example of good writing. It is truth in the fullest sense. And it's, uh, liter it's literally true, but it's true in many other ways as well. And it's, a it's a a elusive in its truth. It's, it's full of wisdom. You know, just to give an example of how this works, when I look at you, Glenn, I see at least two layers of meaning. <laughs> I see the image of God, and I see Glenn Sunshine. <laughs> so that under the, the beard. <laughs> yeah, I well, actually, see I see ZZ top as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you see what I'm saying? This is not an either or. Right. It's not as though one thing cancels the other thing out. It's in in God's uh in, in sort of his manifold wisdom, uh he's able to accomplish many things in one person. Right. Well, and, and I mean, this is this hits right into where we're going to be going. Is the nature of reality, its goodness, and and that goodness being steeped in its relatedness to an infinite Creator, which therefore fills that goodness with with you know all of that depth and range that we're talking about. Um, I'll give it before I enter into kind of some of the material here. I mean, you can give you can give it just looking at any particular creaturely thing, right? Um, you can have a, a scripture talk about a particular um, plant which produces according to its own kind. So it has the dignity of its own creatureliness, the kind that it is, and the continuance of it. But that continuance isn't just about that which has been called good in and of itself, but it also can and may be food for something else or provide grain right, for something right, else. Right. That grain, too, can also be made into a whole variety of things, bread. So you can use, a, you know, a, a grain um, and bread. And, and beer. Beer and all these different things. <laughs> so, and, and so what, we're, what we're, you're really talking about, um, if you were using a, a different set of language uh, terms for it, I mean, you're talking about the wide range of potential in any given thing in terms of, of how it, it fits into creation in relation to God. And so that doesn't mean you just have an endless um, play with no meaning, because there are, well, there are and cores. That, and, and I think this is what happens. I think so, so some people hear this and they read into it postmodernism, yeah, which yeah. is the retreat into subjectivity, yeah. which is not what we're talking about at all. This is objectivity with a capital O. Yeah. And what governs, and this is why even someone like Aquinas would talk about the, 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 the plain sense, what governs it is its, its, its first creaturely kind, right? So what, this is why we keep going back to creation, its goodness, and the significance of its orderings and distinguishings, because their things are given their kind. So there's your, your, your surface level meaning. Then it's from that, once you establish it. So we can't go playing around with the kind. Postmodernity plays around with the kind. Mm -hmm. It wants to try to eradicate that, that, that things have God-ordained kinds to which they, they are to truthfully enact to be the creature they are and reach, reach the fulfillment they're created for. And so we're not saying eliminate. We're saying that will be part of what governs that first sense, but that's not the only sense because those kinds are within a created and moral order of different kinds, all aimed towards different levels of, of meaning and reality. 
There is the sustaining of our creaturely natures. There's providence in common good. Um, and then there is also redemptive history. And then there is also its fulfillment in, in, and then the union of all things in Christ, which is their, their ultimate meaning and purpose. So you have all those layers within that, that core creaturely kind. This is why I keep wanting to go back and, and not eclipse the way a lot of Christian theology as a whole, but a lot of evangelicalism and reformed as well, have, have really moved so far away from creation to, to the fact that when they're talking about meaning and purpose, they, it, it's become reductionistic of something else altogether. I'm going to start with this quote, which is not Peeper. This actually comes from Kuiper, another, another, uh, someone that people may be more affirmative of. Um, and he's talking about art at this point. And he says this, Art can um, both hark back to the beauty of the world's pre-fallen state and anticipate the perfect beauty of the new creation, which art here for Kuiper is doing what festivity is doing for Peeper. He says, art points out to the Calvinists both the still visible lines of the original plan and what is even more, the splendid restoration by which the supreme artist and master builder will one day renew and enhance even the beauty of his original creation. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing a very full reality picture in which creaturely things already have two things, even in their fallen state. Now, which, wh where is that from? Uh, is it, um, is, let me, it's not as lecturous in Calvinism, is I it? I think it, it actually is, but I, I don't have my glasses and I cannot read. Yeah, I know there's a... Yeah, it prob probably is. Well, anyway, I just wish more Calvinists would be as Calvinistic as K K uh, Abraham Kuyper. I think we'd be a lot better off if we were. And so that, that's a good, I guess, step into what he's talking about with art is what um, Peeper is actually talking about with festivity and festival. And so in the, in the, the work, um, In Tune with the World, um, uh, Peeper is actually wanting to unpack exactly well, he wants to retrieve festival. He thinks it's being lost, especially in a totalitarian world of, of what he calls uh, forced labor, if you will. And that was the world in which he was writing, where basically labor and utility were everything. And work was everything. And so even to, to kind of move into this moment of, of the festive, um, if it didn't have some kind of productivity to it, it must somehow be something... Well, you can see how, how it's been sort of... Re Sort of repurposed, festivity, leisure, yes. holiday, yeah. all these things have been repurposed in, in two ways. One is they're entirely sort of interpreted within the frame of restor rest restoring your strength. Yeah. So in other words, you take a day off so that you can go back to work. <laughs> Everything is, ex you know, the meaning of the day is exhausted in that. Well, that you know, it's, all, it's all about just getting back to work, but you're fresh. And then the other thing is that now yeah. we have leisure industry. Yeah. So we have people who actually, if uh, have, have, like I think Disney and you know you know their 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 uh, their cruise line, their their yeah. their theme parks, that's uh, what we call leisure industry. Somebody would come home after a day of working in the leisure industry and say, "Man, I'm really beat." That's why I work so hard helping people feel, you know, experience leisure. And then people, you know, I don't know if you had have had this experience. I was on vacation for three weeks, and I'm so tired. I need a vacation from my vacation. You know, this idea you just fill up all your time with travel and doing this and running there. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what one of the things he 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 addresses in that is we do that oftentimes wrongly with. 
And we think that what he called it bustling is the term. Hustle and bustle yeah. is what um, festivity is all about. There's a, there's a part of it. But he begins the work t- looking at, he says, work, he, he says, in order to get a hold of what festivity is, we do need to talk a little bit about what work is. It makes no sense apart from it. And he says, work is an everyday occurrence, while a feast is something special, unusual, an interruption of the ordinary passage of time. Um, this notion of a holiday every day or even every other day is an idea that can't be realized in practice, even though it may not necessarily run counter to the concept of festivity itself. I'll get to what he means by that. But here's the festive quality of a holiday depends on its being exceptional. A festival can arise only out of this foundation of life whose ordinary shape is given by the working day. Um, and he goes... Um, so he talks first about we need everyday life, work days, to have festival. An idle, rich class of do-nothings are hard put to even to amuse themselves, let alone celebrate a festival. The Dolce Vita is desperately unfestive affair. There is incidentally um, considerable testimony that this sad truth applied also to the courtly festivals of the Baroque period, which many an in innocent historian has described as highly festive occasions. The probability is that they sprang not from joy in living, but from, pe- from fear, from um, the horror of the vacuous, because the true prerequisite for festivity was lacking in these courts. Um, and so his point is, is that um, if you don't have work, and then he'll, he'll describe work um, as different than what he calls pseudo-work, um, then you're going to have pseudo-festival rather than um, real festival. He goes, not all activity, not every kind of expenditure of effort and earning of money deserves the name work. That should be applied only to the active and also usually laborious procurement of things that are truly useful for living. And it is a good guess that only meaningful work can provide the soil on which festivity flourishes. This is something very much like... The, the yeah, well, I think there's a huge crisis in that today. Yes. Yeah. I think many people don't feel like they, they're engaged in meaningful work. Yeah, and therefore, the loss of, of genuine festival. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. festivity would be thankfulness. It's a celebratory of what God has given and sort of how we get to participate in the goodness of things that he's given and... And if we if we feel like we have, I don't know. If you, have you seen this? Uh, these uh, these articles on BS work, BS jobs. <laughs> I don't know. It, basically, it was something in the Atlantic I read a while back. Basically, it's it's kind of busy work, and it's sort of the filling out of bureaucratic empires, you know, sort of turfs. Uh, so you know, you you basically manufacture new positions in order for the person who's in charge of that division to feel ever more important because year after year the budget goes up, the number of hirelings goes up, but no one really feels like they're doing anything. It's it's like everybody's a, a, a sinecure. You know you know the idea that the sinecure is somebody who's <laughs> got an income but doesn't really have to do anything? Think for it. Yeah, yeah, kind of like, like a parish priest back in Edwardian England or something. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was thinking about the Baroque festivals. Uh-huh. You know, that when you go back to those, if you actually see, um, you know, uh, recreations of them or in movies or whatever, they look really seriously ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you know, the outfits, the costumes, the wigs, the, yeah. you know, all of this kind of stuff. And I think he's really hit on it exactly right. They had to go to greater and greater extremes to make it at least seem like something was going on. Yeah, yeah. When there really wasn't. Was it? Yeah, and he, and he, he hits at another point. He said, sometimes, you know, the wig, the dress, all that's part of it. And, and he said, even there, there is even 
a legitimate and understandable, I think Charles Taylor would call it this kind of way in which carnival can enter into it to almost be a, you know, a certain kind of release into that joy which you're not able to kind of break from that routine. Um, and so he says that's just, that just happens to be one of the kind of inherent temptations of any genuine uh, festival. But he said it doesn't, it's a true festivi festivity and feasting doesn't arrive from that and it's not oriented to it oriented towards that um and so so yeah i'll get back to that um but what he what he builds on here he's talking about um something very similar i think to what protestants meant by one's vocation as one's something you find meaning and and spiritual significance he says um but of course meaningful work signifies more than the mere fact of workday accomplishment. The implication is that uh, man understands the work and accepts it for what it really is, the tilling of the field. It has, it, it you pushes can see it. back, which yep. always includes both happiness and toil, satisfaction as well as the fall, the sweat of the brow, but joy as well as the con consumption of vital energy. Um, if work is not constituted by both of these, then the reality of work is falsified and festivity is ruled out. And he says, this amazing quote here, and I'll stop and let everyone comment after this. He goes, um, we must consider the matter in more concrete terms. Let's look at the totalitarian state labor, where labor is glorified and government propaganda romanticizes, rises in the production indices as if work were itself a form of celebration. So for, for the totalitarian, um, in, in this kind of work-driven um, they see basically work itself should be everything and that should be what right. celebrated. At the same time, true festivity, can, festivity cannot exist in such a state. The very nature of the state is against it, but the possibility or festivity um, is destroyed even more thoroughly by the other falsification, the view that man's life, daily life taken as a whole is nothing but vexation, meaningless bustle, um, dead drudgery, um, in a word, an absurdity, which, however, the intrepid man who wishes to surrender neither his dignity nor his clarity of his vision will not simply endure in dull passivity, but will explicitly affirm and choose for the sake of its own absurdity. He's talking about a Camus there, of course. Um, but his point is, is that um, we often think that, um, we, well, he's looking at the two, two extremes. One is where work is made everything and celebrated. You can't have true festivity because um, you can't distance from, from, first of all, the meaning of work, but also, yeah, it, it, the higher meaning of it in, in festivity. But then on the other hand, where everything is absurd and all of life is idle, you don't have the joy requisite for festivity to be able to celebrate the goodness of life. Because if you think at the heart of reality is something that is absurd and meaningless, it's hard for festival to have, yeah, yeah. have any... Uh, take well, yeah, you, you've got to have uh, a god for there to be a festival. I know that, yeah. you know, he mentions that yeah. in another place. He actually talks about that in, in uh, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. In fact, we've talked about people before in the episode we had uh, entitled Leisure Suits, the Basis <laughs> of Culture, question mark, yeah. where I introduced, uh, you know, the Leisure, the Basis of Culture, the book by Peeper to our listeners. But... You know, a couple of things strike me about, about this. One, I just mentioned that you've got to have God for there to be genuine festivity because there has to be someone who, who uh, is to be thanked for the goodness of the world. But the other thing that's sort of, I think, tacit in this, and this is something that, I, that I'd like to see more reformed 
preacher's address. Um, in our enthusiasm for, for vocation, which is great, you know, the idea that every person has a calling and that every calling is uh, important and can be used to glorify God, this can be used as a gloss to sort of obscure the fact that there are a lot of unhappy people in miserable jobs yeah. that really are horrific in a, in a sort of banal sense. You know, maybe they're, maybe, maybe they're not horrific in, the, in you know, a sort of a grand sweep of history sense. There have been a lot of people who have suffered a lot worse than the modern, you know, sort of cubicle gopher. <laughs> you know, but, but living in a cubicle is not a, 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 any way to live. You know, if if you spend your entire day in a in a in a four by four box, <laughs> you know, it just basically staring at a screen, contributing to sort of a massive <laughs> enterprise that you cannot conceptually grasp, then it's just going to feel like you have nothing to celebrate. You're going to feel like the that everything you're part of is as absurd as Camus said everything is. Yeah, you know, you you it would take a it takes a, it would take uh, almost a monkish kind of uh, super spirituality, you know, something in the, in the vein of Brother Lawrence, to see the super significance of filling out that last form, you know, with with enthusiasm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, we got to be honest about the fact yeah. that that there is a lot of work out there that that is just. You're just a part of a, a machine, yeah, yeah. You know, and at least when you were on the factory of you know floor, you were you were assembling things on an assembly line that you could actually physically see roll off the assembly line. You might have been in, in responsible for the fifth lug nut on the on the back rear wheel, <laughs> you know, on your side of the of the line. But at least you said, well, "There goes the car that I I helped to make." But for most people who live in a in an office environment, it's just all day just pushing paper and they don't see how it fits into anything. Yeah, yeah. Am I, am I exaggerating? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, you know, I think that's what he's on to here is kind of work for, for its own sake. I mean, well, there, are, there are things to be done for their own sake, but they have a value for their own sake. Work isn't one of them to be done for its own sake. It's the kind of work and the object one is working with that will determine. Oh, th think, yeah. think about... Think about you know working in a farm where there was a lot of toil, yeah, a lot of hard work, yeah. But it was evident that you were doing something worthwhile. People could eat, yeah, because you produced something. Well, you know, and I think that that's why we don't have festival. We have escape. Mm. That you know, people when they get off of work, they don't feel like there's anything to really celebrate. What yeah. there is is something to escape. I think that's and so really they right. Escape into all kinds of other things. Yeah, it could be, be virtual reality. It could yeah. be a cruise to the Bahamas. It could be you name it. Yeah, yeah or just partying. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's just that's getting one drunk. Of the thing. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. You know, having a good time. He said there, there's something genuine there, but there's also its distortion, and that that tends to be what has replaced because genuine it's, festivity. Because it's not celebration. That's right. Well, that's that, yeah. That's where he's going with this, and he he picks up with Plato. He said Plato calls kind of festival, religious holiday, a breathing spell. I love that term. A day off from work, a day free from the necessity of earning one's living. It's after all essential to festival, but and there, there is something. It's a day free of servile work, because quite understandably, the adjective servile brings us up short. 
Concealed behind it is an insight indispensable to our grasping the essence of festivity. It must be noted in passing that the underlying concept of artes civiles originally carried no, no slightest implication of contempt. Rather, the term referred only to activity serving a purpose outside itself. Our corresponding adjective will be useful or utilitarian. So for work, it needs to serve a, a larger purpose. Right, right. But quite aside from the connotation of the term, servile work is by nature dependent on something else. It cannot be thought of apart from its purpose. As a concept, it is part of a system of ideas, and we can scarcely consider it without considering its counterpart. The counterpart is not inactivity or non-work, but free activity, ars liberalis, work that does not have a purpose outside itself. Um, that is meaning in, meaningful in itself. And for that very reason is neither useful in the strict sense nor servile and serviceable. So what is he saying is that the counterpart to work, the purpose, is, is realized in that which doesn't need to have a higher purpose. That's the celebration of life, the festival. Right. So like, you know, um, I think that worship is the supreme liberal art. Yes. And festivity is a one way to talk about worship. It's yeah. a way of describing what's happening in worship. Yeah, and, and I think that that's where he's going to go is the root of all festivities grounded in, in um, well, one, well, it is worship both, both directions. Um, and so festivity is really what he will call is an emanation of Easter. Yeah, and, yeah. Some, well, and, what, and when we think about Easter and we think about the Lord's Day, yeah. every Sunday is Easter. And so he is, uses Sunday yeah. and Easter as the two foundational examples of festivity and then every other kind of festivity and then he'll even look in the in the fallen world and say they are echoes yeah in yeah. a fallen way they need to be reoriented redirected sure, um sure. Uh, brought into conformity to christ purged of their idols purified in their practices but they too echo from the creation they're a response to the joy of being. Mm -hmm. They are not to be seen. If, if they aren't seen in that sense, then they, they aren't real festival, and then mm -hmm. they're not part of what, what's going on here. But yeah, he, he, that's what he, he, he'll, he talks about, those as kind of the core. Um, and so he goes, with the death of the concept of human activity that is meaning in itself, the possibility of any resistance to a totalitarian label society also perishes. So in other words, if, you, if we get rid of this, foundational understanding of work is coordinated with, with something non-utilitarian, human activity, um, both in its, its um, work productive sense, but also in its reception of the gift of life sense, we have very little to resist the totalitarian. Oh yeah. And right. I want to just kind of pivot this. What's going on in our, our society? Well, we're not, we're not totalitarians in the sense of we, we're idolizing labor. It tends to be a kind of a perverse type of entertainment and leisure. They want to limit right now, for example, with COVID, a lot of the extreme measures are limiting our labor, right? They're eliminating our capacity to do those things, but they're filling our time up with pretty much meaningless idleness. Yeah, and then they want to limit our festivity. Well, this is what goes with by it. Saying, in a totalitarian, uh, you know, right. because they don't have this understanding of, of work and, and uh, fest the festive, and of course the higher theological vision that underpins it. Therefore, it's, it, there's no resistance to it. So what do they go for? Well, he, he has this argument a little later in the book. He puts it this way. Every festival, of course, is, is two-pronged when it's genuine. It doesn't arise out of the human being, even if the human being is the one responding. It, 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 it arises out of, A, the gift of creation, the gift of being, and its goodness. 
It's a joyous response of praise to it. It's an enactment of our creaturely. And then on the other side, it's a turn forward to our fulfillment, which is only in God. He says people, people just as creatures responding to creation have, have a certain automatic relation to that, though it's fallen and distorted. But Christianity brings it the full exhibition in the Sabbath, it's understanding the Sabbath, yep. or Sun, Christian yep. Sunday, which absorbs the Sabbath, yep. and, then, um, and then Easter, which, of course, Sabbath and uh, Sunday Sabbath is basically what he calls an emanation of Easter. Right. And that is exactly what we talked about with art. It's a, it's a turning back, first of all, it's an affirmation of being. The being is gift, and it's a joyous response of praise for it. So festivity is rooted in that, you know. And then secondly, it's also tied to hope that, that of this feasting and of these pleasures, these things are to be joyed for their own sake because they rest ultimately in our completion where they're fulfilled in, in now God. There, now, there are a couple of things that go on in my mind when I think about all the things you've talked about. One is related to Sunday. And uh, recently I was... Uh, uh, involved in a conversation uh, on a board for a college, and in that conversation we were talking about the liberal arts, and we were talking about, you know, the kind of cl- sort of way that people have understood the liberal arts as being uh, kind of a, uh, you know, you've got a class system that's been sort of uh, justified by, uh, you know, the servile arts making space for the liberal arts to be enjoyed. Hmm. And wouldn't you know that the liberal arts are things that the upper classes enjoy while the servile arts are the things that the Sam Gamgees of the world have to, to, to be engaged in yes. in order for everybody else to, to enjoy the, the liberal arts. But, but what are the things that, first of all, I think that's a misreading, mm-hmm. but, but, but even, if you, even if we take that and say, okay, we'll give you that, we have to, I think, see a, a parallel between six days of work and one day of rest, a Sabbath day, you know, within the Old Covenant, mm-hmm. and how everyone in a household was to enjoy the Sabbath day. The servants, yeah. the animals. Yes, for the animals, <laughs> yeah. Part, everyone part. is supposed to enjoy the Sabbath day insofar as they're capable of appreciating, apprehending the goodness of God and all the things that they've been engaged in. And they're encouraged, they're even commanded, obviously, to offer up thanks, to use the day in a way that's completely in keeping with the spirit of the liberal arts. Because these things are not sort of uh, useful for work. Work is useful for freeing up the time to do these things. To do the, that's right. And, and one of the things um, that um, Pieper hits on is he said, notice uh, for Christianity, which, you know, again, the, the, the exemplar example of the festive the, um, is, is the Sabbath or the Christian Sunday, which uh, absorbs it, as he puts it. Um, he says, what is it about that day? Um, well, one of the core aspects of it is the fact that it is the day on which God declares rest for everything but it's also the day in which creation is called very good. Mm-hmm. So what you have is a goodness of creaturely being being celebrated, the first part of any festive, and then the fact that it's celebrated in its, in its turn towards its fulfillment, communing with God. And that's the resting from. Yeah, and the thing that's such a, so troubling to Seventh-day Adventists is, is the thing that justifies the very fact that we do it. 
Yeah. First day of the week yeah. is the Christian Sabbath, yeah. which orients us to last things. Yes. Yeah. So it doesn't just simply have a look back That's right. at what's been done. Yeah. It's a look forward because yeah. of the resurrection. It's the eighth day, as as our Orthodox friends just tell us, yeah. pointing to the new creation. That, yeah. Now, at this point, I think one of the things I've been kind of pondering lately is the, the notion, you know, we've talked about the world is sacramental, it points beyond itself, but time does too. Hmm. Because mm. time's part of the created order. Right. And so right. time itself has to point beyond itself to, to deeper realities. Getting and, back to multivalent. Right. So, <laughs> so if, you, if you look at, at the, the week, God spends six days working, and on the seventh he rested. If you look at Christ's life, on the sixth day he was crucified, and on the seventh he rested. Yeah. His work was completed, done, completed. On, it is done, it yeah. is finished on the, seven, on the sixth day. <laughs> the, the Holy Saturdays, it's called, is the day he rested. He did nothing. Mm-hmm. And then you get the new creation with the resurrection on the first day of the week. Yeah, that's great. And that, it seems to me, is a, that, that's got to be a really important paradigm for us to think about. And that's, that's why Peeper actually goes. Easter is what he would call, it picks up uh, the, the church father origin on this. He calls it the kind of the eternal festival. That become, every Sunday and Sabbath, or Sunday Sabbath, or, or Christian Sunday, is the emanation of that. So that is the, the, the ultimate festival, if you will. And that is what gives meaning, first and foremost, to the weekly celebration and the, even though they're interconnected, historically you have one come first, but it finds its fulfillment. But it's, it's fulfillment in Christ, which gives you the true meaning of the, of, of the, the, the Sunday and, and the Sabbath. Um, but then you also, um, well, the fulfillment and, and the resurrection. But then it becomes for him what is at heart and root of what is echoing in the whole of creation that A, has been created, but also been cosmically affected by Christ and his redemption. So it is, it is reality. Festivity is relating to the celebrative side, which is part of the resting from work and celebrating the Christ and the newness of all things. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's a first fruit, if you will. It's, it's participating in now what uh, people will call kind of this eternal time. And the very term first fruit points yeah. to the fact that you are celebrating and enjoying what you have done in your work mm-hmm. yeah. because that's what the first fruits were so when, when Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation or the first fruits from among the dead or you know whichever terminology uh, in scripture you pick up on it's because he's completed the work that he is now celebrating the harvest yeah. right right and this is the time for the harvest the harvest is ongoing and uh, we're looking forward to a, a new, new uh, you know, day uh, where we see everything fulfilled. The uh, new creation is uh, something that uh, is completely present. We still anticipate it right now. Of course, it's not fully known or fully enjoyed. So we're still looking forward. But this... Uh, but this pivot point is just something that's really wor- sort of rich, and I'm just kind of my mind is sort of working with it. I'm not really ready to share a whole lot because I haven't thought about it enough. But this pivot point in terms of Sunday 
as a, as a day of um, festivity, but a whole kind of ongoing festivity that continues forever. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things, and I, I didn't get to uh, read as carefully through that section, uh, but he does talk about the, the fact that, again, this is something that does impact. It is every day, but there is a reason for distinguishing the time we, the specific time we celebrate uh, Easter, the specific Sunday repetition. But one of the things he talks about on another note, um, but it is worth uh, pointing out before I do that, something from uh, uh, Henri Blocher's commentary on Genesis, um, he, he's kind of picking up some of these themes, um, at least in relationship to a theology of the Sabbath. Um, he says, the use of the figure of the week for the logic of creation and of its completion allowed G- the Genesis author to outline a theology of Sabbath. That was the theme closest to his heart. The narrative has two peaks, mankind and the Sabbath. This would be better expressed by saying that the creation of mankind crowns the work, but the Sabbath is the supreme goal. Now, what is the meaning of the Sabbath um, that was given to Israel? It relativizes the works of mankind, the contents of the six working days. It protects mankind from total absorption by the task of subduing the work. It anticipates the distortion which makes uh, work the sum and the purpose of human life. And it informs mankind that he will not fulfill his humanity in his relation to the world which he's transforming, but only when he raises his eyes above to the blessed holy hour of communion with the Creator. With this meaning, it would be no exaggeration to state um, that the Sabbath sums up the difference between the biblical and the Marxist visions. The essence of mankind is not work, but to know and commune with God and glorify Him forever. Right. You know, it, it reminds me to some extent of uh, something Oz Guinness said in his book, The Call. He said that r- related to the idea of vocation, calling, mm-hmm. he said there are two heresies. The Catholic heresy sees vocation only in terms of call to the priesthood or to a religious order or something like that. That's how they use the word. Vocation means a calling to those things. Right. The Protestant heresy is to absolutize vocation and to turn it into the meaning of life, meaning your employment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that the the tendency among Protestants, the Protestant heresy on vocation, is to absolutize work. Yeah. Yeah. And... What Blochet is pointing out there uh, is that work is important, but it's not ultimate. Yeah. Worship ultimately is, but work remains important. And that it's, it's treading that middle line between yeah. the Catholic heresy and the Protestant well, heresy. Well, I, I want to focus in on something that I think a lot of people sort of uh, associate with Sabbatarianism, and that is the fussy and uh, sort of condemning... Uh, look down the nose-ism of your typical Sabbatarian. In other words, these people do not look festive. <laughs> yep. they, they, they look uh, like they've just eaten a prune. And when they talk to people about the Sabbath, they're not calling people into something festive. Right. They're just telling people to stop doing what they enjoy. That's it. So you remember like in uh, you know, Chariots of Fire, there you have Eric Little, great guy, you know, but you've got him, you know, in Scotland, he's, he's walking outside a church, you know, and there's a boy who comes along and he's kicking a soccer ball, and, and what do you get? You get Eric Little telling, no, lad, the Sabbath is not for kicking the football, you know, that kind of thing. And, and maybe technically he's correct, but there's nothing in that statement at that time that would give you an impression 
that uh, you know what you are you are settling for far less than you could know, my lad. <laughs> well, you know, th the other side of this though is that in a more continental way of viewing this, as opposed to an insular British Isles way of viewing it. Your Sabbath, the proper Sabbath activities or whatever it is that restores you. So for someone like me who sits around all day and reads or lectures or something like that, getting out and kicking the soccer ball might be the appropriate way of getting restoration. You know, that's an interesting thought because you remember, you remember Fiddler on the Roof, right? Tevier, yep. you know, he's, he's longing for the freedom yeah. To spend all day reading the holy books, right? You know, he's 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 you know just caught in the sort of the the laborious, toilsome daily routine of a milkman, you know, delivering his yeah. his wares to to, to homeowners, and uh, he longs to be rich for what? So that so his can... wife can have a double chin. But beyond that, <laughs> mm -hmm. he wants to be able to enjoy the holy books. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and and there's something. I mean, people. Are, points a lot of things that he wants to kind of bring out is, is he talking about really when, when one is really participating in the, the, the true festivity as he puts it um, one is it um, one is moving beyond the utilitarian at this point it, it, it's not something I do merely for rest or to get a break from it, it's meant towards ultimately what he would call the non-utilitarian end of contemplation but contemplation is not what he calls intellectual argument it's about a recognition of the gift of life, and it's a joyous celebration of that gift. Um, and so it, it, that can take all kinds of forms. Um, so he, that's why he doesn't, I mean, he says, the, but he says the forms are governed by, patterned by the, the, the continuous religious rites. In other words, the regular Sunday worship. And, and, and so that he, he calls the principal form. The others are emanations of that, if you will. And so, um, so there's, it's not just, not every single type of festivity is worship or, or taking a break from the work week, but both of them have at their heart a ceasing to work to receive the joy of creation and to recognize in one's um, embrace of that joy um, a thankful heart towards the creator, which is the fulfiller of all things. That's kind of what he's on, because he'll say, for example, to have joy, um, one first has to be able to affirm the good gift of our creation. Um, affirmation of creation is at the heart of true response, um, grateful response. Um, and the other thing he says, for example, with, with Christmas, he says, if the incarnation of God is no longer understood um, as an event that actually concerns you now, <laughs> um, then you're not celebrating Christmas right. with true festivity. So the joy of creation and the reality of new creation, not, he's not saying he said that you've got to be conscious or just thinking about these, but true festivity is a response to what was given us in those things. Well, you know, back to your quote uh, from uh, Kuiper. Mm -hmm. You know, Kuiper saw the connection of, new, of creation and new creation yep. as, you know, as it relates to art. Mm -hmm. You know, good art is something that takes us back and takes us forward. Yeah. You know, back to creation and forward to new creation. I don't think that most Christians have any sense of the connection of the two. Yeah. I think most Christians think that that new creation is a complete divorce from 
yeah. creation. In fact, yeah. I, they, I, I, I suspect it's a kind of Gnostic sort of uh, mm -hmm. tincture to their understanding of creation itself. I think they think yeah. of creation as a prison and that it, and salvation is escape. Yeah, yeah. That's why, I mean, that's, I think that view is what made Marx's um, critique have some punch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That religion becomes an opiate for yes. the masses. It's okay. a way of escaping from, um, A, the to toil, but meaningless toil, right? Because why is it meaningless? Because it, the toil itself, labor has been ripped from, not merely you benefiting from it, but from the meaning that is at the heart of creation. Well, and I would suggest, I suggest that you can't appreciate the meaning of it if you don't have some sense of your portion. In other yeah, words, yeah. it's when you enjoy your portion that you, you can see how uh, the good comes home. Yeah. So, like, you know, when we think about uh, the steward, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the stewards uh, with their talents, yeah. you know, and we think about the reward... Uh, at the end, what what are they given? They're given more work. <laughs> Which is, you know, you've you've been faithful over a little. I'll make you, you know, a, you know, I uh, I'll give you the, even more to be to, to work with. But also enter into the joy of your master. Yeah. Enter into what does that mean? It means sharing in the profit. That's what it means. You know, one of the things that people uh, when people look at the at at the ancient world. Uh, often they're looking at it in much the same way that we criticize people looking at mid the medieval world. We have all these ideas of, that are erroneous about what medieval people believed. Yeah. Like we all say that they believed the earth was flat. No, they did not. No, they, they were did and, not. and they, we all say they were burning witches everywhere. No, mm. they were not. <laughs> yeah, that's but, much more of a renaissance that's than right. on, actually, but that's another matter. Or and Puritans. Or, or, or if you if, if you take a look at medieval mu movies, you would assume everybody was always covered in dirt. The, the universal the, the fashion statement was mud. That's right. But when we look at antiquity, one of the things that we assume is that all landowners were sort of just, you know, uh, terrible people who never shared the goodness of their lives with the people that worked with them. But if you read things like Economicus, you know, you know Xenophon's treatise on household order, uh, one of the things he really stresses is the importance of sharing the wealth with the people who are in the household, you know, meaning not just your wife and your children, but your servants. So there's an entire section in Economicus on how profit sharing uh, leads to uh, a, a strong and healthy household and, and why you should never beat your servants, why you should never you know, uh, cheat your servants, why you should always make sure that they, f they feel like they've got a stake in the success of your household. So it's, it's entirely, what we think of as sort of enlightened management theory of the 21st century goes back to the 5th century B.C. In other words, people in the past were a lot smarter than we assume they were. Right, yeah, and that, that's one of the things I always try to communicate to people uh, in my classes all the time. Um, when you actually, yeah, I mean, even if you just take a look at what they did in terms of engineering, it's stunning. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Still, we still can't figure out, well, we've talked about this before, we yeah. still can't figure out Roman concrete. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. And well, and you can go back actually to the, literally to the Stone Age where we have no idea how they managed to do some of the stuff that they did. Right. So, but the 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 thing that I'm I'm struck by in the midst of all of this is that you know, going back to your Sabbatarian thing, you know, I probably shouldn't do this. <laughs> but 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 you know, uh, you know how people you, you, in in some Christian circles they talk about your life verse. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure, sure. An, an idea that I... <laughs> My really, life verse is like all the books of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I usually tell them, um, I usually tell them Ecclesiastes 10.19, which actually relates to our topic today. Remind it's, me, remind me. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes the heart merry, but money is the answer for everything. <laughs> well, hold on, interestingly. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my, I'm going to make that my life verse now. <laughs> And if you don't believe me, Ecclesiastes 10.19, look it up. And and interestingly, uh, Peeper must have read it because he hits actually on some of this. One of the things he talks about is, and something um, uh, I think, uh, well, well, is the way in which the limiting of the work week, the limiting of the work actually provides an economic benefit. And he talks all about that, how how that actually freeing up of that time actually enhances the, the blessing economically than not. And then, of course, he does say, well, there's a comparison between sort of merely being wealthy and the existential wealth you have of, of being related to creation the right way and celebrating it. But one of the things he talks about is that festival, true feasting, is a, he says, is a moment at which we should be extravagant. We should take right, right. what we have, and he said, he said, yeah, there's always the altar going overboard, spending your year's salary on the, on the sure. celebrations. He's, thank you. Um, and so he said, that's not what I'm talking about, but he's saying that, that we should make these moments of such that we mm-hmm. take what we do. So he's talking about this. We sure. are to be ben- benefiting from what we work with, and then we get to actually, that's a part of what we enjoy in, right, right. in, the, um, in the festivity. You know, and to, to point out something that is too often overlooked, when you read on the, the rules for tithing in the Old Testament, Hmm. There is a second tithe hmm. where it says you're supposed to collect 10% and then either you bring it or you convert it to money and bring the cash to, well, functionally Jerusalem. And then you blow that 10% on an absolute no-holds-barred party. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is you can buy whatever you want, whatever yeah. makes whatever your heart desires, including beer, wine, and strong drink. Yeah. I mean, it, it explicitly says sure, that. and it's supposed to be an extravagant celebration of the goodness of God. Yeah, and you and you almost see. I mean, you remember, uh, of course, what, what is that? the Dickens' famous uh, one, uh, Christmas Carol. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you have really this kind of contrast right at the height between the the poor family, but they understand what festivity means. Right. Right, right. To, to the joy of creation, family, life, all of it, grounded in ultimately Christmas, <laughs> the, the meaning of Christmas. Right. Then you have someone for whom labor is life, right. no celebration, right. um, someone who sees it as extravagant and a waste. Right. And you really get, the, the, I think, the big contrasting picture between kind of um, labor-driven totalitarianism. Right. Um, and it could be any other kind of totalitarianism that, that rips... That, uh, that center to all of life. And, and I was thinking about this. I mean, literally, um, one of the things he talks about, I mentioned earlier, is you have kind of the religious service and the, the, the kind of what he calls ritual festivity. And that is the core that gives proper 
proper meaning to all the rest. Um, but what do we see? Um, what do we see going on now with the expansion of kind of, of state power um, under COVID to protect people from life, if you will? Right, right. So protect them from worship. They can't meet in person, right? Their right. ritual form and make very insignificant the fest, the celebrating of feasts and right. festivals. Thanksgiving. This whole, this whole and idea of the essential worker, right? Yeah, the essential right. worker, and that that life is just merely the pre preservation of you. So basically what? You can work because they're taking away the festivity right. and they're taking away the work. So what do they do? What is life living? What, what, is the, 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 what, is the, what is life at this point if all you can do is watch Netflix all day? Yeah, right. I've got to, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've been able to, uh, you know, sort of uh, see uh, occur in my life uh, over the last few years is, is uh, I've gotten to know, and I've always known a lot of, you know, small business owners. Um, but uh, some of the guys I'm getting to know now within the last few years uh, really get this. Um, they have companies with, you know, uh, dozens, if not hundreds of employees. They're not huge, but they're um, significant enough in size that they're in a, they're in a position to actually sponsor festivals, you could say, for their, for their employees. So, uh, you know, in certain cases, you know, you'll have maybe 50 employees and then their families, which, which means that you're talking about some kind of event that could be upwards to 200 people or more in size. And uh, it's coming right out of the profit of the company to sponsor this great gala, you know, this event. Mm -hmm that uh, is, a, is a time of celebration and thankfulness. And in each of these cases, uh, and I'm thinking about I'm thinking about three specifically, hmm. uh, the owners are believers and uh, really do believe in Fight, Laugh, Feast. Hmm. They really have that kind of feasting thing as a part of their understanding of the way th the world works. And, uh, and they'll fly people from all over the place hmm. to these events at the, at, on the company tab in order to make sure that everybody can be together and give up, give thanks, render thanks to God. And they, they're very, in each of these cases I'm thinking about, they're very explicit about that. The, yeah. These are Christian business owners who hmm. uh, attribute their success hmm. and the fruit to God. And they want to share that with everybody in the organization and want them to uh, enter into a time of festivity together. Not mm. just okay. Everybody gets a bonus, and you get to go and spend it as you please, wherever you wherever you are. Mm. No, we're we're a, a company that is ordered to the glory of God, and uh, enjoy that glory. And uh, this is one of the ways we go about that. And it's just, it's a it's a benefit to being a, a part of this organization. Well, it's interesting because you contrast that with what he calls the joylessness of those that don't know the joy of being. Mm -hmm. They don't receive the gift of being thankfully. And I, I see that as really a large part of Western civilization. You could almost say it's the whole of the left, if you will. Yeah. Because yeah. They, they hate, let's be honest, they hate being as such. Mm -hmm. They don't like any created form to be the governing um, form that when we truthfully enact it, we, we, we enact what we are as creatures. Right. They want to play with the form because they're unhappy with the form. And so they want it to form the form to serve them and right. their wants and wishes. And this, these aren't governed by joy and thankfulness or reception of creation. It's right. all about transforming it 
to be in accord with with right. what they think will make them happy. Yeah, it's and, right at the heart of what Marx said. You know, the purpose of philosophy is not to describe the world as it is, but to change it. Yep, and and not to receive the gift of it, um, mm-hmm. but to 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 turn it into, you know, um, basic. You you impose the order on it that. Mm-hmm you see all the way down all the way down all the way down and the thing that i'm struck by is that you know i was just reading somebody gave a quote from 1984 that i saw recently that basically said you know they banned dancing they banned all of these different things every one of which is associated with celebration Mm -hmm. and it occurred to me when i read that that that's the nature of totalitarianism it doesn't matter what totalitarian you're dealing with they always strip the joy out of life. They always strip celebration. They always strip festival. I, I, I saw it right past, and you know, I know we've already dealt with a show on Halloween, and uh, I don't want to get into that right now, but I remember this past Halloween where they, the, uh, in, here in Connecticut, one of the ladies that was part of the government got on the radio and was talking about how people should kind of probably prefer not to go out for candy. And she goes, um, putting everyone's lives at risk just for a few pieces of candy isn't worth it. There you go. That's right. It's just about a few pieces of candy. There couldn't <laughs> happen to be anything more going on right, right. with a kind of festival or a celebration or kind of harvest or a, nothing more. No cosmic meaning um, or something that even children have kind of a, a sense that there is something about this that is intriguing, something more to reality than just a few pieces of candy. Yeah, something kind of magical. Something magical that speaks of, of a, a higher order of meaning. And, and, um, and then later, you know, it's, Christians will fill in the blank on that. And, but there you go. I mean, that's, the, that's exactly. And so you wonder why, oh, why it's okay to just cancel this or, you know, we're canceling Christmas. I mean, this sounds like, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's that's the right. Burger Meister Meister Burger. You know, one of, the, one of the things in God's, and we should probably wrap up here quick, but one of the things I see in God's providence is that uh, what we have is uh, one of the quickest ways to sort of get on the bad side of just regular people is cancel Christmas. Yeah. If you want to get on the bad side of the human race, just cancel Christmas. So what these people are doing is they're canceling Christmas and they're giving us a, a good reason to sort of, See them for what they are. Yeah. Now they'll make all kinds of pious, and I'm using That's that right. in, in the worst uh, sort of connotation. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of uh, proclamation of, proclamations about you know life and caring and stuff like that. But we we know that that's pretty thin. Yeah. We know that that's not entirely genuine. Well, and from what I'm hearing, in California, they're limiting now turkeys, um, making them available <laughs> to people because they don't want them meeting together. And uh, I believe it's Pennsylvania now has decided um, they're going to cancel the ability to buy any alcohol the night before Thanksgiving. Yeah. So you want to turn on the bad side of uh, just general humanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, and, and I guess that's what I'm getting at. But anyway, yeah. what, we should probably wrap up on that cheerful note. It's Thanksgiving this week, yeah. and... Uh, and we're going to uh, just celebrate uh, and be thankful at the Wiley home, and we're not counting heads. We're not going to do that. Anyway, with that thought, if I'm free next week and not in prison for having said that, we'll be back, and I'll be back for another show. Yeah. But anything you guys want to say as we conclude, uh, Glenn? Uh, one of, this is, again, one of these many shows that I think we need to return to because I think we need to actually go beyond the concept of sacred time in connection with the Sabbath and Easter to look at it in terms of, again, the liturgical year and the idea that there are sacred times that work through the, the seasons of the year as well.
Yeah. It would be something I think would be worth worth pursuing. Yeah, it might be worth trying to do even before uh, Christmas. I think as we talked about something about with Advent and all that. But I think you're right. And, and Peeper actually, to his credit, addresses that as well. Um, very very rich stuff. Um, so you know, I think end end with um, you know as as they used to say in the Lutheran Church, uh, let us keep the feast. And uh, there you go. There you go. And uh, and we shall. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, we'll uh, wrap it up. Thanks a lot for listening to theology. Podcast. We're glad to have you with us. Bye bye. Bye now. Bye bye.